What you do do, though, is you create something which is, is interesting in its own right. And that's the reason why people still eat charcuterie now. We don't make it and eat it because we have to. It's still used as a product in modern times because of its intrinsic desirability. This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Peter Booth is not a chef. In fact, Peter is a Melbourne-based lawyer, which is why we can't show you his face on the airwaves. A few years ago, he became interested in charcuterie and went on a journey which culminated in the release of A Charcuterie Diary. Peter, how are you? Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's good to get you on the show. How long did it take you to pull this uh, book together? Oh, it was a lockdown project because I had nothing much else to do. So from start to finish, about three years, but it's self-published, so everything takes a lot longer. Where did the interest in charcuterie begin? Oh, look, I think um, I've always been interested in uh, food. I started um, cooking some French food, and then I became interested in um, making bacon. And bacon was the first thing I made with some success. So I thought I might be able to do this. Take us back to making the bacon and the the trials and um, the successes of that early on. Well, there were many um, uh, failures. (laughs) Uh, The failures have been for all sorts of reasons. Lack of attention to detail, being distracted by other matters, but mostly the environment in which to successfully cure the meat. It requires a very predictable and narrow band of temperature and humidity neither of which can be obtained in a domestic refrigerator. But bake is very easy because it's smoked. And all you need to do is cure it up pretty quickly. It only takes about a week. And then you can smoke it in the sort of smoker that you buy from the fish tackle shop. So you don't need complicated equipment, and it works really well. Is there a certain sort of um, pork or fat content that you prefer when making bacon? Um well, I use commercial pork, and commercial pork, as you know, is quite lean. Um, that is adequate. Sometimes you get more fatty pork, but um, bacon does have to have um, a degree of fat in it, although there are types of bacon which don't. You can just cure up the loin of the pork, which is very lean. You do have to be careful because it'll dry out really quickly. Classic bacon is the belly part with no bones, and that's got about five layers of fat. And it works very well. I want to explore the book and and how you researched and, and came up with the idea for the book. But um, take us back to when you were young. Uh, what sort of role did food play when you were a kid? <laughs> I grew up in Australia in the 1960s and 70s. That meant that food wasn't very interesting. But we had the classics and we had casseroles and boiled vegetables in winter. The vegetables had the colour boiled out of them, as my mother was wont to do. We had a lot of lamb chops. Occasionally we had steak. That came with coleslaw and only in summer. There was only there was dessert. It was uh, apple crumble, baked custard or stewed fruit, nothing else. My mother used to make um, cakes and biscuits and chutneys and so on. She made Christmas cake and Christmas pudding. I still make the Christmas pudding. It's my great-great-grandmother's recipe. 
She also preserved fruit. You'll recall the Fowler's Vicola, great big green boiler on the stovetop. There were peaches and pears every year. Now, it may sound somewhat idyllic, but I have to say, after I left home, it was many, many years before I could look at lamb chop or stewed fruit in the face. When did you first start getting interested in, in food and exploring it for yourself? Oh, well, I've always had an interest in food. I used to um, cook uh, a little bit at home uh, when I was growing up. Not much. Um, after I left home, I cooked a lot of uh, Asian food because I always liked that. And then Italian food because that, that's the dominant subculture in Melbourne when you go out for a meal. Um, more recently, French food. And French food, I think, led me into um, charcuterie. Tell us about how you started the process and, and you know, you, you thought of the idea, but how did you do research and get down the track for making writing this book? Uh, well, um, the, this book fell out of the, uh, the first book. So the first book is all about um, entering into the area and teaching myself how to do it, essentially. It's, it's a story. And uh, I bought, because of my background, I bought every book you could buy on the subject from everywhere I could find. I read them and I was no better off. The American books are written in American, for Americans, in Americanese, using imperial um, measurements. And it just didn't work. I mean, they start with uh, five pounds of meat which is, you know, is 2.25 kilos. Try going to the butcher shop, and it's measured in teaspoons of this and half a teaspoon of that. Try going to the butcher shop and asking for exactly 2.25 kilos of meat. It just doesn't work. So I, I set about trying to turn them into the language I could use with percentages of meat and in imperial, um, metric measurements. Ultimately, that led to me writing the first book which is, as I say, a, a story of how I taught myself how to do it. The second book moved on from there. I got bored with doing those things and frustrated by the lack of variety in the books in terms of the products, uh, as I had been with the first book. They're mostly Italian, very few French, and really nothing else. So I decided to search out unusual forms of charcuterie and from different countries and cultures. And that, that led to um, more notes. And I spent two years during lockdown really doing R&D. And then I decided oh, I'll write this down. Well, tell us a little bit about um, some of the failures and successes along the way as, as you were, were learning and um, translating it, I guess, for the audience here in Australia. Uh, the the recipe is one thing. Once you convert it from imperial to metric, it, it is easy to follow and you can replicate it. And you don't have to worry about the basic quantity of meat. It can be 1.5 kilos of mince. As the butcher always says, it's a little bit over, is that all right? Um, you go, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> the, the main issue are the um, parameters for the air drying of the product. 
So you cure it up with salt and sugar, whatever it is, usually, and some curing salt. And that doesn't take all that long. Then you've got to air dry. That's step two. And step two can take anywhere from four weeks for a, a, a small diameter salami to 12 months for a prosciutto, 10 kilo leg of pork. So as you know, you don't get consistent um, temperatures and humidities in Australia much, and certainly not in Melbourne. And the band is about 12 degrees Celsius to about 14 degrees Celsius and about 60 to 70% humidity, which it is really tricky. It, it's easier to get in Europe than it is here. Um, I tried all sorts of things. Um, I tried the domestic refrigerator. That didn't work. I tried the space under the house. That didn't work. I tried under the eaves on the veranda. That failed catastrophically. Um, I decided that a wine fridge might do it. Not a bar fridge, but a wine fridge. They're relatively inexpensive. And they don't have the ability to control temperature and humidity, but they do run at a relatively warm temperature compared to a fridge. And they run about, about 12 degrees Celsius up to about 16 degrees Celsius. And more importantly, they draw ambient air into the cabinet, which, if the machine is inside your house, as mine is, is quite humid. Therefore, you, you approximate the parameters you need, and it worked. Uh, I've made uh, all sorts of products in it for many years. I now use something different, but um, that was how I made it work. But for that, I wouldn't have persisted. You mentioned that bacon sort of started it all, but what's been some of the charcuterie that you made along the way in the early days where you had real successes um, but, but weren't as easy as you thought they would be? <laughs> well, plenty of those. <laughs> the, um, uh, it came down to the parameters. The recipes are easy. It comes down to the curing parameters, the air drying parameters. Um, prosciutto was easy. Um, it's a whole muscle product. You rub it with a, a bit of curing salt. You bury it in salt for a day, a kilo, bring it out. Then if you've got somewhere to hang it, come back in 12 months. I did that in the wine fridge um, quite successfully until I used a really large leg of pork. Uh, uh, we came across a 300 kilo pig that someone wanted to get rid of. So after butchering it, which is a different story, uh, I had a 20-kilo leg of pork. I was going to turn that into prosciutto. So I managed to stuff it into the wine fridge, just. Um, so far, so good. Then um, uh, the, there was a bit of a smell. I thought, oh, well, that'll be all right. Then there was a lot of liquid in the bottom. I kept wiping it out and it kept getting bad or worse. Worser and worser, as they say. Um, finally, I pulled it out and it had been touching the back of the wine fridge, which was slightly warmer because of the motor behind, and it, and it rotted. So that was a 20 kilo prosciutto that went to the big prosciutto bin in the sky. Other things, I guess, whole, what I call whole muscle products have always worked quite well. You'd take a piece of belly for, for bacon or a 
piece of shoulder for capicola or a, a leg for prosciutto and so on. The areas which is, or the area which is most problematic is salami. It may sound curious because everyone says they make salami in their backyards. Well, I tried and um, it was very difficult, mostly because of the curing parameters. Remember, it's, it's mincemeat. So mincemeat leaves, it, leaves itself open for bacterial contamination very, very easily. So it'll go off unless you're very careful. So hygiene is very important. You'll learn that early on. The other thing that happens with salami is you've got to get the mincemeat to all glue together to become a cohesive piece of meat that you cut with a knife. And it doesn't want to do that. Uh, there are ways to make it do that, and you learn that again through trial and error. The, the books gloss over that quite a lot. Um, and the role of salt, for example, in achieving that binding process, they don't discuss. I work that out with a bit more research. Uh, indeed, that's a chapter in the new book. Um, so, look, there were a lot of failures. I was all about the process. It was all about teaching myself. No one, there was no one to teach me how to do it. And uh, I gave all of it away. So um, it was just making sure that I could do it. And um, whilst I have no friends, my wife has a lot of friends. So I was giving it to my wife's friends. So, and it would have been most inconvenient if they got sick. So I had to make sure that everything was absolutely fine. So anything I had any doubts about were thrown out. Consequently, I threw out a lot of stuff. I'm pleased to say I haven't thrown anything out for a number of years, but, but in the early days, it, there was a lot of trial and error, particularly with salami products. You mentioned um, butchering a pig, um, which you said was, a, was another story. Can you take us back to that moment? <laughs> uh, wasn't so much a lemon. Whilst I have no friends, I, I have several acquaintances. One acquaintance uh, rang me and said, uh, "Do you want half a pig?" I said, "Sure." We'd done some pigs before, because um, part of the interest to me is the butchering, which I quite like, and the idea of transforming the whole animal into these products I think is really interesting. So I said, "Yeah, sure, fine." Uh, he said, good, because I've already bought it. Uh, I said, okay. We had to go three hours out of Melbourne to get this thing from the farmer who raised it. Uh, and he had it in his uh, portable cool room. And as soon as he opened the door, I knew there was a problem. It, it barely fit, fit into the cool room. The parts of the animal were just enormous. I'd never seen anything so large. Uh, nonetheless, we bought it because we'd agreed to buy it. Um, and he, I said, it's a pretty much, uh, he said, uh, yeah, yeah, I'll show you the others in the paddock. Took me over to the paddock when they were running around the mud. And they were all the size of, like, um, Toyota Corollas. They were just enormous, running around. And I said, was it as big as one of those? And he, and he paused and said, no, mate, it was bigger. This thing, we estimated, was about 300 kilos dressed, which means very, very un undressed, of course. Um, so it had fat on it, imagine four fingers deep, which I'd never, ever seen before. It was 
what they often call a salami pig, and we didn't realise that at the time. I'd never heard of I've heard of a salami pig, but I've never seen one. They're, they're elderly sows that have come to the breed of their end of their breeding life, and the farmer wants to get rid of them, and so they sell them for very cheaply, and people use them to make uh, charcuterie. But we'd never done it before, so we didn't know what we were dealing with. So one of the so a there's a lot of meat that's okay you can butcher that um, and deal with all that but b the meat is extraordinarily fatty i made bacon in the way i normally make bacon i thought okay this is good um put them in the hot smoker cue them up put them in the hot smoker um and as i say you know they had three or four fingers of fat on them it was when the rendered fat started running out of the bottom of the hot smoker that i realized i'd made a mistake the um, uh, even though hot smoking is not very hot, there was so much fat on this on these on these bellies that it was just rendering, and I ended up throwing it all out. So I, so I ended up throwing out all the bacon, the um, uh, prosciutto I've just described that went to the big prosciutto bin in the sky. The salami was okay, but it was. Um, incredibly fatty. I think if I was ever to do it again, I'd approach such an animal in a very, very different way. But as I say, we had no idea what we were doing. Part of the learning process. <laughs> what surprised you along the way as you delved into the world of charcuterie? Um, well, I guess a number of things. I was surprised at the inadequacies in the books, I don't mean to be unfair, but they were either written for a particular market, I speak mainly of the North American market, or, or they were in imperial measurements, that's for the North American market and for the two or three available books in the United Kingdom market. But also, they, um, I thought, overcomplicated things. And that's one of, the, one of the frustrations I found in it, and which led me to write the first book, because I became frustrated with the, with the books. I thought it would be quite straightforward. Um, the other thing I found a bit frustrating was um, the dominance of the Italian subculture in the area. It is, after all, um, uh, a technique which the French gave their own name to. <laughs> There's a lot of French products, but no, really no French books. There's one, which is very old. Um, so the, the, the idea of being a broad church where you could investigate various cultures was very, very difficult. And again, I've tried to do that in the, in the first book and the second, because it's not an Italian thing as much as they'd like you to believe it is. No offence to the Italians. Um, but uh, they seem to have dominated the printed version or the recipe versions in books. You've uh, branched out uh, doing classes. What, what, what's that experience been like for you? Oh, very interesting, actually, and quite surprising. Um, the first surprise was that anyone bothered to attend, the... Um, Second surprise was um, 
wherever I go, there's a mixture of people who've never done it before, which is really nice. But um, the majority of people in the room uh, have done a lot of salami making before, but not much whole, whole meat or whole muscle products. And I say to them, if you can make salami, you can do this on your ear. Salami is really hard. And they go, oh, no, no, we were, grow up, we were, we were a Italian background or whatever it is. And our grandparents really didn't make um, anything other than salami. So we don't know how to do it and we're really interested to do it. And they take to it like a duck to water, of course. Um, yeah, the interesting thing is the, the diverse nature or the, the range of people who do it. Um, they come from all backgrounds, um, all ages, and um, it's actually been very interesting. It's taken me to quite a lot of uh, places, including um, Byron Bay recently. Mm. Do you um, centre on any specific types of charcuterie for these classes, that, um, or is it? Do you mix it up depending on where you are? <coughs> yeah, the answer is, is the latter. Yes, yes, I do. But I start from the proposition that it's whole muscle charcuterie, because most of the other classes really don't don't do it. Uh, that's the first reason to do it. The second reason to do it is because it's really easy. As, as I've said, much easier and more reliable that, than salami. But um, what I do in uh, Wangaratta every year is a two-day weekend where you start with a whole pig. So the first day is butchery, the second day is a mixture of making various products from several salamis to preparing whole meat things like bacon, prosciutto, um, Capicolo, the classic varieties that are pretty easy. And I usually, I always take um, show and tell. So I make a whole range of products and we taste them and all that sort of thing. And they're products which represent the things they're going to make in the class, but also other things that I encourage them to try. Um, recently, for example, I've been trying to get people to make... Um, Squid ink salami, which is something that I worked up over COVID and is in the book because I couldn't find – I found a reference to it somewhere uh, in a restaurant, I think, and then I couldn't find a recipe for it and then we we sort of mucked around with it and worked it out. It's not hard. You're uh, you're self-published, as you, as you mentioned, and you have three books now, but you won an award for uh, the, the first book. Um, you've won a few awards. What, what's that feel like? <laughs> Surprising. <laughs> um, yes, I mean, I've been very fortunate to win awards for the first book, a charcuterie book, um, and the second book about poultry. Both awards are from um, an organisation called Gourmand, which is a French-based cookbook award run by a member of the Cointreau family, the um, uh, aperitif. And he runs it like Culinary Olympics, if you like. Yeah. The awards awarded by reference to countries. In each country, there are um, 
different types. So, for example, this first charcuterie book won the best uh, cookbook in Australia in the special interest category. There'd be many other categories, cakes, biscuits, you know, whatever you like to think of, which was very surprising um, in a world field. Um, the second book about poultry uh, won, and there's rounds of awards, if you like, the second book about poultry won Best in Australia in this, uh, I think, the single interest category, which must be different to special interest. And then you go to a next level, like you do in the Olympics, and it won best of one of the three best in the world in that category across all countries, which was very very surprising. And I was going to go to the awards ceremony in uh, Stockholm, but um, there was this thing called COVID in the way. Um, but it's been uh, very. Uh, satisfying to receive awards and um, some critical interest in this country. So um, I still remain quite surprised. What impact has um, this exploration that you've had into food had on you? Oh, it's been really interesting. It, it, um, in terms of my family, has become somewhat of an obsession, they say. But um, uh, I've learned the process of writing a book, I've learned the process of trying to publish a book in this country, which, uh, uh, unless you play cricket for Australia uh, or on TV, is extremely difficult. Um, I've got to meet, meet some very interesting people um, and do interesting things like the classes and, and so on. And I've had quite a bit of fun doing it. And it's been satisfying that it's... Uh, worked. I know you're exploring all sorts of uh, different proteins and animals in the world of charcuterie now, um, but um, what, what are the cliff notes for making sort of great charcuterie for someone trying to get started? Uh, it's um, very easy. Uh, there are very few ingredients. It's salt, sugar, a bit of curing salt and um, some aromatics. Um, in terms of whatever flavours that you want. You don't need much equipment. Uh, for whole muscle products, you just need um, somewhere to hang them up for a little while. Smoke products are even more accessible because they don't need to be air-dried for a, a, an extended period of time. The smoking process or the hot smoking process cooks and preserves the meat in one go, and it doesn't take very long. You can do that in a few hours. So you don't need to go down what I consider to be the very hard road or the purest road of someone in order to do it. You can if you've got the conditions. But if you've got um, a small smoker, uh, even a barbecue will do, a bit of salt, you can make a whole variety of products. That, that, that makes it very much more accessible, it seems to me. And that's one of the things I've always tried to emphasise in the classes. You don't need to have a limestone cave in your backyard in order to do this. You don't need to have a $20,000 Italian curing cabinet with computer controls, even though I would like one. Um, it's, it's really quite approachable. 
after all, this was done by um, blokes wearing leather sandals with no electricity. <laughs> and they did it successfully hundreds of years ago. Um, anyone can do it. The very interesting thing for me is that it, this was originally a method of food preservation. See, two or three hundred years ago, uh, you killed your pig, your great big pig. They were much bigger then. You had a bang-up meal of offal. Uh, then you wake up in the morning with a, with a hangover and you had 300 kilos of meat to deal with. There's no freezer, there's no refrigerator. Domestic refrigeration wasn't available until the early 1900s. So what do you do? And the answer is you use the um, time-honoured method of meat preservation, which is use salt. The, the trick, and whoever did this, is that the person you should be applauding, is not to use not so much salt that it becomes rock hard, like salt cod, for example. You just use a little bit, and you don't use much salt in these preparations. My preparations use 3% salt, which is not much. If you do that, it doesn't go rock hard, but it'll still keep. And um, it's very much more versatile than the rock hard salt cod or the the, the salt beef or salt pork you know, used previously. What you do do, though, is you create something which is, is interesting in its own right. And that's the reason why people still um, eat charcuterie now. We don't make it and eat it because we have to. You've got freezers and cryovac machines and all that sort of stuff now. It's It's... It's still used as a product in modern times because of its intrinsic um, desirability. Their products do desirable in their own right, not for preservation values. And I think that's one of the most interesting things about it. What is it about charcuterie? What, what are some of your favourite uh, charcuterie experiences that sort of sort of lit the fire for you to explore it? Uh, well, um, there's three or four classic things that I encourage people to make. Bacon's the first one. It's where it started for me. It's very easy to make. With a little salt, a little sugar and some dried herbs and a bit of curing salt, put it in a Ziploc bag for seven days in your fridge, wash it, dry it, put it in the fridge overnight. This creates a sticky layer called a pellicle, which is a protein layer which forms on the outside of the meat. This makes the smoke adhere to the meat. Then you hot smoke it. That's it. It's done. And it'll last forever. Prosciutto, as I said, was the next thing I had much success with. It's very easy to make. You remove the hip bone, expose the femur, keep the trotter on, rub a bit of curing slot over the meat, bury it in salt for a day a kilo, then hang it up, come back 12 months later. Salami is much more difficult, as I said, but conceptually very easy. It's fatty pork, coarsely minced, add some chopped up back fat, about 
whatever herbs you want. Mix it all well. It, it's got to bind together. And then hang it up. It doesn't take very long, between four and maybe six weeks, depending on the diameter. And that's, that's ultimately the attraction of these things. You can make them at home, and they're very simple, but much better than the commercial products, usually. Well, Peter, congratulations on uh, the three books you've written so far and um, the education and knowledge that you're sharing with, with everyone about the world of charcuterie. We've loved having you on The Crackling today to hear just a bit of your story. Please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Thank you very much for having me. I've enjoyed it. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.